Those of you staying in here, let's just get started. Okay, if you didn't pick up notes, the usher's going to walk through and give you some of those. But let's see how smart you are this morning. Here we go. Name something a person on a diet might order at a restaurant. Salad's going to be there. What else? Diet sodas. What else do you got? Any other ideas? Fish. Okay. Here's what they said. Eggs, fruit and veggies, water, chicken, fish, and number one was a salad. Here's, here's something for you. What is the first thing you would do if you inherited a million dollars? What's that? Tithe? Tithe? Okay. Share it? Ooh. Okay, good. What, what would mo, again, this isn't a survey of believers. This is, this is just right open. What do you think they'd say? Buy a new car? Another house, do a vacation? Ta- taxes? <laughs> Here, invest the money, pay off debt, buy a boat, take a vacation, buy a new house, get a new car. Number one was quit their job. Okay. Now, for bonus points, Bob, I added this. Give to the Lord's work. There you go. That's, that's what we should say. Name something adults are afraid of even though they know better. Something you're afraid of but you know better. Snakes? Spiders? Dark? Okay. What? Flying on planes? Mice? Here's what they said. Their in-laws. Taxes. Dentists. Aliens. The dark. Monsters. And ghosts or boogeyman. Okay, here's what we're going to do for just a little bit. These are common images, but very, very close up. Okay? See if you can identify. And I've given you a clue on each one. What is this? Yeah. But it's something, it's, it's really magnified. What do you think it is? It's sand. That's sand, magnified. Here's one for you. It has to do with starting a fire. Oh, you're close. You're really close. It's the, it's the box that you would strike. Very good. Has to do with time. A watch band. Well, you guys are really smart. Wow. Has to do with doors. You've, you probably got them on you. It's a key. It's a key. Yeah. Picture of a key. Has to do with rodents. Yeah, that's what it is. It's a mousetrap. Very good. Has to do with making music. Harmonica. Very good. Okay. Has to do with eating and drinking. What? Like, like that? That's what it is. Okay, that's what it is. It's the cups. Has to do with money. It, it is the bill. It's the actual bill. A real small corner next to on the $5 bill, that area that's kind of foggy. Has to do with something you eat. It's not spaghetti. You'll probably not eat it again. Okay. It is, it's hamburger. It's hamburger, the ground beef. Oh, now you don't want to eat it, do you? Okay. Okay, sometimes it's beneficial for us to really closely examine things. Sometimes it's not, okay? So what we are doing is we're trying to closely examine some very common conversations that Jesus had. And so we're headed to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is where we want to focus in during the next few minutes, and then we're going to jump back to the Gospel of John. Matthew 18, we were starting with this text, and we were in Mark 9 last week, just got started, got a few minutes, then we quit. And it's the story of Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and while he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, two people show up with him. Uh, Peter and and James and John are the uh, people that came up with him. But during the Transfiguration, who shows up next to him that they see? Moses and Elijah, okay, they show up. They have a conversation. Do you remember, according to Mark 9, what the conversation was? We talked about it last week. His death. They're having a conversation, Luke 9, excuse me. They're having a conversation about his decease, about his dying, okay? Then what happens is uh, his disciples, Jesus comes down, he talks with them. In the course of rebuking them about... not able to cast out the demons because lack of prayer. Then he tells his disciples about something. What does he tell them? Tells them the same thing. 
He tells them about his upcoming death and resurrection. Do you remember their reaction? Part of it is given. Part of the reaction is given in Matthew 18. Mark 9 gives us more of their reaction. Does anybody remember in Mark what they, what, how they initially react when he's talking about, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die? Okay. They end up, in their conversation, they have like three different things that happen. One is it says that they do not understand, and then they, they don't understand, but they don't have any boldness to a- ask any questions. Okay. And then, oops, then they get into their discussion about who is the greatest. And that starts in Matthew chapter 18. After Jesus has just said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, suffer and die, then it says at the same time the disciples were, uh, the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom? The story unfolds that what happens is they're walking along and as they're walking along, before they get to a house and ask this question, they're arguing amongst themselves. Mark chapter 9. And when they get in the house, Jesus is going to say, what were you arguing about? And then it leads to this question. Now, my, my question for you is this. They hear about Jesus suffering. They hear about Jesus, you're going to die. They hear that he's going to resurrect. Why are they so focused on which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? Why would they even think that? Why would that be part of their conversation soon as Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again? What's that? Okay, that's a possibility. Jesus is going to be off the scene, so who's going to be leading us? Okay. Other reasons why they would ask this question? Any ideas? If he's going to die and he's going to resurrect, what might they think he's going to bring? The kingdom, okay? And so they get into this discussion, <clears throat> and their, their immediate thought is, okay, then the kingdom must be at hand if he's going to die and resurrect. So they're thinking, you know, the kingdom is there, and their thought is going to be, okay, then when he brings the kingdom, he's already talked about kingdom seats, there has already been some of the disciples arguing, even, do you remember two of them, their mom came and asked Jesus a question? Do you remember that, that account? Yes? Well, James and John's mother asked Jesus, can my son sit on your right and left side? So they're thinking kingdom, and they're thinking position, and Remember what happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. This, okay, you're part of the 12, and you're arguing which one of us is the greatest. Who might immediately think they're the greatest because of just what happened? Peter, James, and John, why? They got to see Jesus, and what about the other guys? They saw Jesus in all of his glory, and when they came down, what about the other guys? What couldn't they do? Do you remember? Down at the bottom, they couldn't cast out the demons. And so Peter, James, and John, surely they're more important than these other guys who couldn't cast out a demon at all. And so they get into this conversation, and as a result then, the bottom line is they're spiritually immature. If you hear about somebody suffering, what would be your normal response? Empathy? Empathy towards the person? What can I do for you? And their immediate thought was, what will this do for me? Okay. And so what happens is, you know, the disciples, and it's a good thing none of us ever struggle with this anymore. Okay. But they had this great need to feeling like they need to be recognized. So in the midst of that, dealing with the disciples, and remember, this is the time period where Jesus is training the 12. It's in his last 18 months. He's training them, preparing for his departure. And one of the things he's got to get across to them, they got to stop thinking about themselves and thinking about other people, the work of God. And so what he does in this story, they enter the home, they don't answer when he asks them, what were you, dis- what, you, know, what were you just discussing when they get into the house finally? Oh, why do you think they didn't even answer? They're embarrassed, Okay. Yeah, and so they don't answer, and Jesus then pulls a child, and that's where we start with Matthew 18. At the same time, 
came the disciples unto Christ, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus calls a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoso shall receive one of these little, one, little children in my name receives me. Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to the man by whom the offense comes. Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offend you, cut them off, cast them far from you. It is better that for you to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands, two feet, and to be cast into, lake, uh, into everlasting fire. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it far from thee. It is better for you to enter into life with only one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. What a loaded text. It is just amazing. What lessons would stand out from here to you? If you were to say, I want to, I'm going to teach a class, I'm going to start with this, this, or this lesson. What might stand out to you? Any lesson? What's that? Salvation is easy. Oh, that's a great lesson. We're going to talk about it. Any other lesson that might stand out? None? You had too rough of a weekend, didn't you? Okay. If you're a teacher, you're coming from a teaching point of view. By what Jesus did, what does that tell you about teaching techniques? What might be helpful? Illustrations. Illustrations. Are illustrations good? Like when you're listening to a message for a 20-minute message for the introduction. I didn't finish. Okay. When you're listening to a message, what does an illustration do for you? What's that? It makes connections. Okay. Does it help at times even to get back into it? You know, you start drifting a little. And let's be honest, it happens to all of us. We drift a little and the illustration pulls us back. Okay, it can also be used of explaining something. It's a, it's a window that lets light in on a truth. So if I were to look at this from that perspective, I would say, hey, this is one of the lessons that stands out very quickly that he's teaching his disciples. We don't need to explain, expand upon it, but the value of object lessons. They're very helpful in teaching. Yes, no? Okay. Um, there's also this one, the value of insignificant people. That's going to stand out because what insignificant person did Jesus pull into the midst of them? A child. We're going to talk about that. There is also this lesson, okay? It's better to value others than to value yourself. Okay, that's going to be there. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Because that's, that's the gist of this whole thing. That's the heart of the matter. But let's expand a little bit and let's remind ourselves of children back in those days, what were they viewed as? For the most part, something almost value of property, devalued to property. Anything else that you know from that culture? What's that? Almost like a servant. Okay, okay. In most of the ancient culture, the children didn't have legal rights until, okay, until they were older. But something else had to happen in most Roman and Greek cultures. What did the parents have to do? They had to legally adopt a child to get them to the point. Jews weren't the same thing, but Jews had the value when they got into that adolescent time. And so when you look at it, children were not considered heroic. Okay, there wasn't that, that sense. And, and quite frankly, what, what have children done to get a crowd following them? Nothing. And so in this time, they don't have the rights even like children do today. Indications are, and if we do some rabbinic study and see what they thought of children, it gives you an insight that typically they would, they would not invest in training little kids as a whole. In a synagogue, maybe. But outside of that, uh, because of the local community, you didn't train kids. Kids weren't valued. There's a reason for that, and I've hinted at it here. What is the reason that they hesitated training little kids? 
the, their lifespans. The lifespans, there was, you know, the estimation is that up to 40% of the children won't make it to the age of 12. And so why were you going to invest your skills as a teacher in doing a preschool? Because that child may not survive. And so Jesus is dealing with it, and we, we, uh, we know from writing, to just give you a sense of the Jewish mindset that you basically aren't teaching really a whole lot until they're of that, uh, you're teaching the basics, but you're not teaching the law, which the rabbis would consider the most important thing. In fact, here's a quote, morning sleep, midday wine, and chattering with children, and tearing in places with me, with, where men of commonness people assemble, that destroys you. That's a waste of time. So don't spend time focusing on children. And so Jesus, and in fact, his disciples felt that way. Do you remember how we know that? When people were bringing the kids, he chased, the disciples chased the kids away. And Jesus' response, suffer, yeah. Okay, so that, keep it in mind that what he is doing by sitting down and bringing a child, this is culturally revolutionary for most of those people. And he's training his 12 that way. So let's start off with this. Before we get into the child, let's do what Teresa hinted at. Okay, let's do a, a spiritual lesson about salvation. Ultimately, he's pointing out God's greatness is seen in this text. How so? Because he is good enough in making the kingdom available to any and all. Let's, let's explore that for just a few moments, okay, before we get into the concept of children. The kingdom of God, according to this text, is open to anybody because Jesus makes the comment, what phrase, what verse? Okay, pardon me? Okay, that all can come. Remember where he says, except, in verse 3, except you be converted and become like what? Okay, then he goes on, he makes the comment, you know, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. And so he's, and he, he says, whosoever receives the child receives me, don't offend. And so the kingdom of God is open to any, very clearly, in a, who are childlike. What does he mean, you have to come as a child? You have to come to him as a child. What, what, do you, what does that say to you? You've got to be born again. How do you, what do you mean by that, Rick? Okay. Yeah, did you hear what he said? That little kids, usually from the parent, they just put unhesitating trust in what you put before them, what you do with them. Do you think that's what Jesus is getting at? Trust? Okay, so we have that idea. Even though they're not socially important ones, we know that's with kids. And even though they're not superior individuals, those with childlike humility, okay? Children typically, they don't have a whole lot of career success to share with others, to brag upon. Yes, no? Okay, my kids didn't. Okay, it wasn't like, oh, look at I've done all these things successfully. They didn't do any of that. And so that coming without being boastful, with total trust, with uh, just total dependence upon the Lord, I think that's what he's getting at, is you have to come with that total dependence, not depending and showing off, look at me. Because kids, I, I know kids can say, look at me, but they've got nothing worth bragging about in the sense of, I deserve to get into heaven. There's nothing there. And so we come with childlike faith. This is, the, this is the real gist of the text. Okay? The gist of the text is focus on the greatness of other people. Let's dissect it a little bit. Okay? Um, let, let's look at this, phrase, this idea. Starting off, who are the little ones Jesus is talking about in this text? Do you know there's possibilities here? What are you thinking uh, when he says the little ones? Who, do you, who, who have we been talking about so far? Okay, no. No, we're talking about physical children so far. What other possibility is there? What's that? A new believer. A new believer. There are those who would, as going through the text, don't you dare um, stumble, not only physical children, don't you dare stumble spiritual children, immature is that a possibility in the text? 
Are both of them a possibility in application? Could be, could be. But the bottom line is either way, if it's spiritual, physical, or both, the bottom line is people are important. Can we overlook physical kids? Let's take it to Christianity. Let's take, take ministry. That's what he's talking about. Can we get to the point where we overlook kids and take kids for granted? Yes, and we get more caught up with the kids distracting us than we get caught up with instructing kids. Does that happen in churches? Okay, what about baby believers? Can we ignore baby believers? Can we ignore people we don't know? Yes? Okay, and so we, we just don't reach out. And so, gee, and, and who are we more concerned about having recognition? Us, ourselves, and being recognized as opposed to us recognizing others. Does anybody else battle with that from week to week to services besides me? Okay, where it's just look for people that you don't know. Look out for people who are young Christians. Vest in them rather than say, people appreciate that I'm here. And so he's taking his disciples, he's challenging them not to overlook these people, and he's warning them, don't you hurt these people. Don't you stumble these people. And again, we're right back to this idea, who are we often more concerned about? Whose rights, whose privileges, whose experiences? Mine. Even if it might stumble somebody, our reaction is, get over it. And Jesus is warning, be very, very careful. And so when you go through, what phrases in this text, what phrases show the value of insignificant people, overlooked people? What words, what phrases did Jesus use? What ideas that say to you, they are really important? Any phrases? Let's just take verse 3, okay? Verse 4, 3, 4. Okay, there's a phrase of that idea. He compared these children as saying, if you're like this child, you're going to be one of the greatest in the kingdom. He's valuing the child, the young Christian. Any other phrases stand out to you through the text? What do you, what do you have, Bob? Okay, okay. How we're supposed to respond to them, okay? Any other phrases that stand out to you? Well, let, let's take that whole concept of verse 6, 7, and 8. You better not offend those individuals. So we just take phrases, okay? Do, you know, there's serious warning. Don't you offend one of these people because in God's mind, this insignificant person has value. You better not hurt them. You better not hurt them. Any other phrases that show God values the, the little ones? At the very end of where we stopped, is it verse 10? Is that right? The last verse that we read? Yes, no? Yeah, verse 10. What does he say that God has assigned them? He's got the angels. So you have God assigning them angels, which we get the concept of what? That's in churches they talk about. Guardian angels. Okay, that's possibility that's there. And then he says, the way we treat these kids, if you receive, there's where Bob mentioned, if you receive one of the little ones, you have received me. So there's tremendous value put on these individuals throughout this text. And he says, okay, you got to make sure you show them value. And we've already alluded to it, okay? If you walk through the text, okay, you got to value these people in your spirit, in your mind. The disciples weren't, and he's rebuking them for it. He says you need to receive them. The word that is used for receiving is the idea that you warmly greet, that you, okay, let you haven't seen, Judy, you haven't seen Kristen for how long? How long you, were you two? Months? Okay, in May. When you two saw each other, was there an, an enjoyable greeting, a hug? Yeah? Okay. You were glad she showed up, right? Very glad. Okay. Does that ever happen with you with family, friends, relatives? It's like give them a big, big hug. When Rick and I saw each other, it's been a year something like that, since we've saw. Our greeting isn't a handshake. Okay, I'm not diminishing handshakes or promoting that, but it was as brothers and, you know, uh, sharing family and grandkids, it's the big hug. Why? Because dear friends. 
And so he's, that's the word for receive them. The word isn't this, hi. Okay, it isn't, the word is a warm reception. Now, for some of you, the warm reception isn't a hug. Maybe your extensive warm reception is, hi. Okay, and that might be the most you give. But from your heart, you are, what does that say to that individual? What? Yeah, I, I, I value you. I'm glad you're here, okay? You're, you're relaying to them that this is exciting to see you. However you do that. He says that's the way we're supposed to treat kids. What is the old adage? Kids should be seen and not... Yeah, uh, did, did any of you grow up in homes where there was the kids' table? The kids' table at reunions? The kids... Are over... we, we still do it, you know, actually. And it's space, it's not... But when we were growing up, it was the kids' table, and Grandma and Grandpa, they don't visit the kids' table. It was just like... They're here, but let's keep them in a closeted area so they don't break anything. Maybe it was just my brothers that that's why they, they create that attitude. It couldn't be me. But do we ever display that to young people? Yeah. And he says, no, hey, as disciples, growing disciples, you've got to make sure that you don't despise. The despise is literally to look down on somebody to criticize somebody, to rip them apart, to, in conversations, to them or about them, make them feel inferior. Good thing none of us ever struggle with that one. Okay? He goes on, he says, can't ignore them, can't neglect them, can't spite them. In fact, if we go a little bit further, we're supposed to be serving one another. That's what he's teaching the disciples. The disciples that, hey, listen, this is, we're not in competition for others for recognition. We're supposed to be recognizing others. And then he basically says, if you're a person who isn't focused on, look at me, recognize me, but you're the person that goes out of your way to welcome, receive, help others, don't despise them, what does he say is going to be, happen to you in the kingdom? You will be considered one of the greatest in the kingdom. God will recognize you. You will reap what you sow. But we're so automatically caught up with us. And he says, stop it. Stop it as disciples. You just got to stop. So the bottom line is we have to remember there are no insignificant people. Fine, we tease, we talk about it. But in our hearts, do we, do we really greet? Do we welcome? Do we value one another in fellowship? And value is done by expression, by encouragement, by interaction. And so he makes it very clear. So I have to ask myself these questions. These weren't for you. These are for me. Do I value other people when we get together? Do, you take, do I take time to personally interact, especially the little ones? You know, by the way, I, I think this is a truism. If you, wanna, if you want to reach into the hearts of a home... Reach the hearts of the kids. If I show interest in your kids, what does that relate to you? How do you feel? If, if, I, if, I, if I would come up and spend time and talk to your grandkids, whatever, how would that make you feel? It, you would be excited that somebody is expressing, and it's not just me, it's whoever, somebody cares enough that they would talk that they would, they would focus on them. And you appreciate those people. And so he's telling his disciples, if you want to minister to people, make sure that you don't neglect an element and recognize, do you spend more time in seeking recognition or recognizing others for their contributions? Here's a question. When was the last time you sought to befriend somebody not like you? Here's a question. Do you find yourself doing more to fish for compliments than you giving compliments to others. Here's a question that goes this way. Do you strive to remove spiritual obstacles from your own kids, your own grandkids? Have you worked at meeting and welcoming others into the church family? 
Have you welcomed anyone to worship services other than your own friend or circle in the past weeks? You know, when it comes to, do you purpose to talk to the youth in the church? I just heard this morning, Pastor Tony's talking about the idea that he's going to have to be finding several different teachers. Are the children valued enough that you would be willing to reach out and teach? And Jesus is saying, hey, it's important that we recognize others and not just seek to be recognized. Right in this time period, another instance happens. So let's go to John chapter 7, and let's begin this one. We're not going to get through it. But in John chapter 7, this is an amazing story, where most of us are very familiar with the story. But in the story, in the conversation, it is really one of those, um, um, those, those accounts where Jesus speaks that people twist it. Do you remember how we said just a couple weeks ago they twist the feeding of the 5,000 and they said the real miracle was getting people to share, okay, the kindergarten 101, and that wasn't the case. Here's another twisted passage that is just an amazing story of what Jesus is teaching, but it is really uh, violated by a number of people. Now, remember the Gospel of John in particular. There are several miracles and messages recorded. It is all designed to bring people to belief disciples, uh, people who are familiar with Christ, and people who have never met Christ. And so the entire story of the Gospel of John, he's picking different sections to build faith in the believers and in the unbelievers. And so in this story that we come to more than any other gospel, we have messages recorded. Well, Jesus is going to give a message in John chapter 7. It is the Feast of the Tabernacles, and Jesus is going to be preaching in Jerusalem. And uh, so this is towards the last few weeks, months of his ministry. Actually, the feast day would fall in October. He is going to be crucified right around March. So this is in the last few months of his ministry that John 7 happens. He goes into the temple, and he starts preaching in the temple. The large crowds are there. They're gathered for the feast day. He's still popular with the audience, but not with the uh, Jewish leadership. And as he is speaking and as he's preaching, by the end of this one day, they want to stone him. They want to kill him. And so they're, they're just rallying their forces so in this course of time, they want to they get rid of Jesus. They've got to trap him in some way, shape, or form. Take his words and twist them so they could get rid of him, so they can turn the crowds against him. So they're going to lay a trap. The trap shows up in John chapter 8, where we start the, the account of what happens. In John chapter 8, it says Jesus was in Jerusalem. He goes out to the Mount of Olives, and he comes back into the temple. So he goes out probably by the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? He comes back in the next morning, and early in the morning he comes again to the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, what's the trap they set? They bring a woman to him. What's the problem with the woman? Okay, they caught her in the okay act of adultery. Okay, and so what's the trap? What what do they ask Jesus? Should she be condemned? So what? What's the trap? By asking that, how is that a trap to Jesus? Well, if Jesus says condemn her, what, would, what might they say to the crowds? He, he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's, very, he's very calloused, he doesn't care. If Jesus says, let her go, what are they going to do to trap him? He's not following the law. So they think they've got him, do you remember, it's on a much slower scale, remember they bring the coin later on? And they say, you know, should we pay temple taxes? And if he says yes, then they're going to you know, accuse him of, and if he says no, they're going to accuse him. So they think they got one of these traps. We've got Jesus right where we want him, that we can accuse him. And so um, remember the setting. Jesus has been saying for months, the Sermon on the Mount, if you're with us on, on Wednesday nights, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I am not come to destroy the law, I am come to fulfill the law. He's been saying all along, I'm for the law. I'm for the law. 
I'm for the law. And every time they say, when he says through that sermon, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, he isn't contradicting the law, he explains what was really meant. It's their applications that he is opposing. And so it's an interesting study. You can join us on Wednesdays for that. But what happens is Jesus has been saying, I'm for the law, I'm for the law. Now we'll find out if he's really for the law. What's he going to do with this woman taking adultery? Because according to the law, what should happen to her? She should be stoned to death. Okay, so Jesus has been over and over been, and in this sermon, he's been saying in the Old Testament, quoting the Old Testament, and so they're going to catch him, they think, and according to Deuteronomy 22, somebody taken in the act of adultery is to be stoned if they're found guilty. We should uh, add that to it. So Jesus responds, and his response is amazing. Okay? He, does, does he say she should be stoned? He says she shouldn't be stoned. Okay? So he writes in the dirt, and then what, what, what's his first words? What does he say? Nobody stone her. Let her go. Is that what he says? What does he say? Okay. Does he advocate, does he advocate she can be stoned for her crime? Yes, yes, this is, take it, take it little thought by little thought, okay? You know the whole story, I understand it, but take, take and see the sense of where he's going. Does he contradict the law? No, no. He even says, let him without sin. Okay, and by the way, is that in, does that coordinate with the law? If you're carrying out punishment, you better not be guilty of, of the same stuff, okay? This fits the law. You don't commit hypocritical judgment of others. He doesn't say you can't judge others. You just don't commit hypocritical judgment. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay, so he's advocating the law. That is one of the, one of the very first things that we want to say. Okay, what does this reveal? Number one, it reveals this. Jesus was not against God's law. That is very important for the readers. It's important for us too. Don't walk away from this story and saying, Jesus got rid of the law. He did not do that. He was willing to fulfill the law. There isn't a contradiction here. Okay, he's very consistent. But we also learn he's not intimidated. Before we go any further, he's not intimidated by social pressures. Okay, what I mean by that is this. Okay, they were setting a trap for him. To let her go, they would say you're teaching contrary to law. To stone her, he's no longer a friend of sinners. Okay? And if he's no longer a friend of sinners, what happens to all the crowds? They're going to go away. He's going to lose his audience. Are preachers ever pressured by losing the audience? Are businessmen pressured by losing customers? Yes, okay, so you understand the pressure that could be here. Either way, they could hurt his ministry. Either way. So what would modern-day politicians, what would they try to do? If they're, if they're caught in between two things, what is the typical thing? Skirt the issue. Ride the fence. Don't take a stand. Be for both sides. You say, how's that possible? Watch modern politicians. Okay. They seem to be able to do it. They seem to give answers without answers. What does Jesus do? Okay. Jesus in his response, so he's got lots of pressure on him. He's in the middle of the crowd. Remember, this is happening. There's a lot of people that could get upset right now. Okay, if he offends the crowd, they could get upset. If he offends the leaders, they're going to get upset. And so in the middle of the crowd while he's teaching, and notice, and you may not catch it in your English, but in the original language, they continued. They continued when he's, for instance, when he's stooping down and writing on the ground. The idea is that they continued to question him. Okay, it even says in King James. So when they continued to ask him over and over, what's your answer? What's your answer? What's your a- Do you ever have pressure when somebody's standing over you? And they're saying, give me an answer. And they want the answer. Okay, so Jesus got the pressure. 
And so it's there. And they're with numbers. There's older men. There's great social pressure. Does he cave to the social pressure? No. He stays with biblical principles. He doesn't go against the word, but he expands upon what the idea. He doesn't collapse under public pressure by the religious bullies and give in. He does not let popularity dictate his response. Have you ever seen people, what is the wind of public opinion? And we'll go with whatever public opinion. Have you ever in your life seen that? Okay, Jesus does not do that. He stays true to the mission that, and the word of God, and so he knows that God condemns all sin, but God also forgives. That is the consistent message okay, that, it's, that he's going to live by and operate by. Number three, he's merciful when it wasn't deserved. He's merciful when it wasn't deserved. We all know this. Okay, is he willing to forgive the woman taken in adultery? How do you know that? What's that? I'm, I'm sorry, Quinty, I think. Neither do I condemn thee. Okay, so did she deserve to be condemned? Yes, but what does he offer her? Mercy. Is that consistent with the Old Testament? Is there mercy? Yes, absolutely. Which, by the way, aren't you glad there's mercy? Okay. Jesus was able to forgive, neither do I, because of her future, of his future payment. Story of, you know this, it's a story of tremendous grace, which this is a tremendous story. No matter what you have done, Christ offers forgiveness. What a tremendous story that, that's put in here. So my comment is, name your sin, and Jesus Christ will provide forgiveness as long as you don't exceed his deadline for forgiveness. There's a third truth, a fourth truth. This is very important because this is not taught anymore today about this account. There is such an emphasis upon mercy that peoples today say he is just merciful and he says go and do whatever you want. That's not true. Jesus is merciful but he is not soft on sin. Does that make sense? Okay, and I think we need to make sure we understand this from the passage. He doesn't ignore her sin. <clears throat> he's ignoring, when he's writing in the ground, who's he ignoring? Not her sin. He's ignoring the bullies. Okay, for a moment. He doesn't overlook her sin. Okay, he doesn't just say, you know, go do whatever you want. Not at all. In the account, he considers that she is worthy of death. Would you agree that that's true? Cast the first stone. Go ahead, cast the first stone. If you don't have sin, if you're not hypocritical, go ahead and cast the first stone. So he's not saying she's okay. She, it's, she felt like doing it. It was private sin. She was you know, enjoying herself, so it's not bad. Is that a modern concept anymore? That whatever you want to do, do it. It's not sin. Jesus is saying, no, no, this was wrong. This is worthy of death. He told her at the end of the story, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin. Oh, tremendous, tremendous thought. He wants her to stop this sin. Okay? Forgiveness means there's repentance and we don't continue to, to be involved. So what the, call, the, the, what the Father called sin, Jesus calls sin too. Interesting the way that that unfolds. He clearly considered the religious leaders have done wrong. They're all, they're all concerned about her sin. Jesus is also concerned about their sin. What was their sin? How do you figure that? Do you, do you know what he, that he wrote? Well, we know it convicted, verse 9. Yeah. And again he stooped down and wrote in the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, they leave, beginning the oldest and even to the last, until Jesus is left alone with her. Okay, whatever he's writing, <coughs> we think, we think, and, and you've probably heard, we think it was, it could be their names, it could be things that they have done. We don't know. 
but there is definitely, they came with self-righteousness and they're leaving with shame. Okay, their tail between their legs at this moment. How else do you know that they've done something wrong? Go ahead, Charlie. They should have brought the man. You think? You sh- you're... Do you agree with Charlie? That they should have brought the guy? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to accuse the woman, but there had to be two if she's taken in adultery. Okay, and so according to the law, okay, let's, let's pick this a little bit. Re- he's saying to them, their religious zeal doesn't cover up what they've done wrong. And there we ask the question, what did he write about them? We're not really sure, but it brought about the conviction. Which brings us to another thought. Jesus was not saying it is wrong to judge people. This bugs me that people take this text and run with this story and say we never should judge people. Is that what this story is about? Not at all. Is it appropriate to judge at times? Yes? Yeah, we're told we have to at times. Okay? But the, the, I, the problem here goes this way. Some say Jesus was teaching we are, never have the right to judge or condemn. There are times when the Bible clearly says we're supposed to judge. You're supposed to judge me. Yes no, or no? Yeah, you're supposed to. You're supposed to make sure that I'm doing what? Teaching the truth. What else? Leading the church. Somebody else said it over here. Living the truth as well. So you've got to make some judgments, and that's biblically proper uh, that we would do those things and, and appropriate. You have to make judgments when you elect officers. Okay? You have to say, okay, choose out seven men of honest report, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to make some type of judgment. But you pray that by the Spirit of God you're making right judgment. In this context of what's happening when Jesus says, let you who are without sin, it's interesting what happens here is there's obviously a hypocritical judgment. The reason we know that is the leaders were hypocrites. According to Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20, both the man and the woman were to be brought. There is almost a sense that some have concluded that this woman was a ploy. That they gave this guy a pass, which the guy may have been in on the deed with the leadership. We don't know if that's true. Okay, we don't know all the facts. But we know that they gave the guy a pass. They let the guy go. That violated the Old Testament that they were supposed to do. They, we also know that this was not the place to do public judgment. This was actually mob rule. They have a legal system. If they find somebody, according to the Old Testament, you find somebody taken in adultery, where do you take them? <coughs> take them you take them to the leadership. The community, the spiritual leadership, and an examination needs to be done before punishment be carried out. Okay? They're, they're, not taking, they're not taking the woman to the proper leadership. They're taking to Jesus. You and I know who he is. You and I know he has ultimate authority. But up to this point, what did they think of his authority? They've questioned it. They don't think he's the authority. They don't think he's Messiah. They weren't bringing this woman for proper judgment. They were bringing her to, yeah, to get rid of Jesus. They're using this woman. They're abusing this woman in a way. Uh, legally. And so Jesus is, in, in fact, did Jesus deny that he has civil authority in judging cases during his ministry? That's a tough one. Did Jesus say to anybody ever, who am I to judge between you and your brother? Take it to the magistrates. Did he ever do that? Yes, because that was the proper legal course of action. They aren't following the proper legal course of action. In fact, they want to kill her. What do you know about the law? What do you know about their culture at this time? Think what they try to do with Jesus. They want to kill him. What, what do they have to do? What did you say? They have to take him to the Roman court. Why? Okay. At this moment, they're in captivity. Can they practice capital punishment? No. They can't do this. 
if Jesus agreed and they did a mob stoning, what might they have done with Jesus? He's guilty in whose eyes? The Romans. The Romans, they could have been setting him up and saying, he's taking authority away from Caesar. So, I mean, this trap had a lot of, a lot of webs to it. That is amazing. And so these guys are coming. It, it's a lynch mob. And the lynch mob really wasn't concerned about the woman. They're concerned about getting rid of Jesus. They're not concerned about justice. They were hypocrites. I asked this question. They, or this, they wanted to accuse Jesus of not following the law. Right? Okay, have we set the case? Yeah. Shame on you, Dave, for not following the law when I'm eating pork. Right? Okay, so they're, they're extremely hypocritical. Um, let me ask this question. Do you see any similarities to their hypocrisy and hypocrisy that can inundate modern churches? L- let me suggest some to you. Hypocrisy, highly critical of others while ignoring your own faults. True? True, okay. They make a big issue out of acts of immorality transgender, homosexuality, adultery, immorality, which we all agree is wrong, while not addressing their own issues of pride, jealousy, prejudice, anger, envy, hatred, and causing division. Is that a possibility? That that afflicts churches? Yes. What about this? They often handle other people's faults in the public arena right away rather than do the private thing. Does that ever happen? We publicly accuse, we publicly make a show, we don't go and talk to the individual one-on-one. It is easier to be bold in public than be bold Mm one-on-one. Here's one for you. They demand everyone think and respond the same way they do, or else those folk are an enemy of truth. Is Is that characteristic of some of the modern abuses in churches? And so the the bottom line is what we have is that Jesus is insistent on those who are forgiven that they should not continue in sin. Would you agree with that's what he says to this woman? Go and sin no more. Let's pick up there. Let's just stop. Let's pick up there. We have just a couple other thoughts, and then we're going to jump into another story in John chapter 11 next week. Thanks for your input. Thanks for staying awake. Let's get ready for worship.